I'm Mike Gillis. And I'm Casey Doran, and this is Radio vs. the Martians. Well, the time has come now, Greg, because now we're both in the same place. And this is unlike, uh, you know, most of our listeners. In fact, all of our listeners pr- weren't there for our Christmas party for the Captain Picard Day. And uh, we kind of forgot to promote it on the show. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, this this December, you guys are invited to any and any and all listeners are invited to come to Captain Picard Day. The date, time, and venue to be determined at this point. But it's just a fun way to hang out with the, the people who work on Radio versus the Martians. Uh, what I kind of enjoyed is watching people recognize each other's voices and interacting mm. for the first time. As I had thought at some point that we'd had every possible combination of, of guests um, on shows, but we haven't. And having people go, oh, yeah, I heard you on that thing. Like, you, that's vague recognition of recognizing their voices. And in those moments, I realized how poorly the idea of a superhero secret identity would work in real life. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, uh, specifically, if, well, if, uh, just, just to end the pitch, if you want to come in and basically join in what is a de facto Radio versus the Martians episode, because that's all it really it's is. It's like the mega episode. Yeah. The, it's team the cast of thousands episodes. Yeah. We had we had a discussion because the first half, Greg and I had a discussion about the first half of Star Trek Discovery had came out, but uh, the second half had not finished. Now we are past that. We are we're past the first season, the the freshman the freshman year essentially of Star Trek Discovery. And I have to throw something right back at you because you were defending it, and I'll say this this uh, uh, this Dashiell Hammett story that you have told now on this podcast twice about it was terrible because it was almost good. That is exactly my, my exactly my opinion is that Star Trek Discovery is bad because it's almost good, but the problem is that its flaws do are not overcome by the things that are positive about it, and largely because the main character is not likable unfortunately and not and not a great lens for a new audience to try to rediscover what is awesome about the federation and star trek okay <laughs> that's first of all that's fair criticism so you're you're gearing up for a fight that I'm not gonna have. <laughs> we just you know? had a fight on Highlander, so I don't know why I'm uh, yeah. trying to start another um, one. But Are we getting a divorce? <laughs> <laughs> no. Here's what I like about Discovery. First of all, um, the thing that you are citing as a flaw is to me one of the strengths of the show. If you cannot see that the spine of the thing is is. Uh, What's her name? Sonequa Martin-Green's character. Michael Burnham. Thank you. Her character, the the whole point of the thing, the spine of the thing, the whole reason this story exists is it's structured around her redemption. Of course. Her, it's the opposite of Breaking Bad, okay? Yeah. She, it's, she's it's, the first Starfleet mutineer, and she causes the Klingon war to happen so it's about and us she's learning ter- what Starfleet is by her by recanting. her fucking up. Yeah. And and you know, it's also about her following 
bad examples and learning better. It's about her making mistakes. See, the, the thing that used to drive me insane about the next generation was Gene Roddenberry's insistence that by now the Federation is perfect. And this condescending thing where we go to other planets and we straighten them out because they're not as good as we are. Discovery is so <laughs> not that. It is, it is about a Federation ship that is out there on their own in a hugely hostile environment trying to fix the thing that they fucked up. I think that's a really interesting story. I think it's totally okay to tell that story against a Star Trek background. Um, I loved the subsidiary characters on Discovery. I even liked Captain Lorca, even when he turned out to be, you know, not good. Um, I still liked that. I never bought the idea that all Starfleet captains are great because, you know, Gene Roddenberry himself wrote stories where Starfleet captains were awful. Genocide and, 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 and admirals, too. Often admirals are also usually assholes. Well, here's here would be my rebuttal. One is, I actually think we, you and I both agreed to this sort of peace treaty, is that we no longer talk about the platonic ideal of Star Trek in terms of, like, it's the Roddenberryan vision. Because yeah. really it was... Roddenberry forged with people like David Gerald and stuff. And so I think I, I suggested that instead of calling it Roddenberry, we call it the Great Bird of the Galaxy, because then it's not just, even though he was the Great Bird of the Galaxy, it's more just a a, 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 a few minds that have, have created this legacy of a universe and this morality around the people in it, some of the people in it. I think I can call it the vision of the great bird of the galaxy versus okay. the version of that dude. Okay. And but but I will also say though is that for the first half or more of the series the characters hate each other. They act as if they hate one another. And this is the thing this is the thing that I uh that even even non-sci-fi shows I don't like is when the idea of you creating drama by having it that the characters hate each other is 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 a is totally intolerable. I I would watch an episode and I would feel bad about myself. This is not the <laughs> it's not the feeling you're supposed to get when you watch a star when you get when you finish watching a Star Trek episode. You're supposed to feel better about yourself. You're supposed to your opinion of humanity should lift a little. It should lift a little. It shouldn't. It shouldn't make you think. Oh yeah, well we're just gonna be petty terrible selfish hateful assholes and because you know the guy in charge happens to be an asshole and so he inspires everyone around them to be in competition with each other to talk shit about each other behind their backs to assemble to for the common goal of trying to do warmongering which essentially is what Lorca is basically is trying he's trying to be the best warmonger in the federation he's trying to prove to the admirals that he can he is the one who will single-handedly win the war against the klingons and and I don't know, Mike, can we... I don't know if I want to sort of talk talk totally spoilery about the end of it, because you haven't seen the I first season. I haven't seen it, because it's. I, I haven't been willing to pay for CBS All Access, because I only want to watch one show on there. Um, I think I, if I was ready to just... Okay, I have a week off, and I will pay for that once and marathon it once, but I just don't have the free time to be able to probably get that all done at once. Um, I don't really care you about fucking sports. trade waiter. I am you a trade waiter. Damn trade waiter. Put it on. You're you're ruining the industry, Mike. Oh, I'm killing. I'm killing. Uh, <laughs> what was it? Mayonnaise? Is that the latest thing that the youngins are killing? Um, <laughs> millennials and Hooters. Mayonnaise and Hooters are the latest things. <laughs> the latest casualties of the millennials. I think they killed TGI Fridays. <laughs> like, why can't we just you know? 
I don't know. I'm not going to get on a political rant. I was going to say, can we kill privatized healthcare, young people? <laughs> but um, <laughs> the uh, I I don't care about spoilers. Um, I think that it's not about having read a Wikipedia article on something. It's about the experience of it, hmm. and sometimes it's fun to be surprised. But you know, it's Star Trek, and I've already heard a couple things sort of through cultural osmosis. Isn't Captain Lorca from the Mirror Universe or something? Mm-hmm. Okay, that's what I've heard. Yeah. The first half of the show is about a misguided attempt to perfect a new instantaneous star drive. The second half of the show is the revelation that Lorca is a mirror guy and he's diverted discovery using this new drive into the mirror universe to do bad things, to, to vent his personal vengeance mojo stuff. And the crew has to deal with him. They have to somehow fake their way out. And in so doing, they all find out where their lines are. Now that's an interesting Star Trek story to tell. First of all, I think secondly, um, and more importantly, television itself has changed since the original Star Trek, even since deep space nine, even since enterprise the, and we all knew going in because the creators kept talking about this. They wouldn't shut up about it. They kept saying, this is a serialized season long narrative. Okay. So I don't expect to feel good after chapter four of a 12 chapter book. You know, that's, that is my response to your. Okay. That's fair. That's totally fair. I'll Um, say though, as far as this, there's a season long arc. That's about like, eventually they find out that, that Lorca is not, someone who represents their federation because he's not from their federation. You only have to look at, there's a next generation episode where Picard gets, I think it's called allegiance. Picard gets kidnapped from by aliens and, a, and uh, he's replaced by like a double essentially. And it takes the crew who know him. It takes him, takes them a half a day before they start being like, wait a minute, this isn't Picard. And so the, you know, the second, the second and third act of the show are, about Picard trying to escape or try to figure out his captors and about the crew of the Enterprise who know, like, they know, like, this captain just wouldn't act like this. There's something wrong. Them trying to figure out how how and what happened and to find a way to try to unseat him without, you know, obviously being mutinous. This would be my same problem is, is they would know... You would, if you were a Starfleet officer, you would know immediately. See, I don't think you would. Not in the way that they've posited this. The, the bearing in mind that this is not the original next generation, everybody is flawless. You literally have to pass a flawless character test to be a starship officer. I don't think this, I don't think that is part of Discovery's premise. I think they are totally okay with not everybody in Starfleet being a good guy. I th- and I think that there is precedent for that in previous iterations sure there of is. Star Trek. I'm sure there is. I, my, so, my thought is is that I I I, I feel like if they're as a, as an example, if they're trying to have this show about, about showing an example, a moral example, which is really at the heart of what Star Trek's the storytelling of Star Trek, they have their chance to do it at the very end, and it feels utterly and totally tacked on. It feels like a complete and total afterthought. We we're Starfleet; we don't do that, but we spent. 90% of the time acting as, like Romulans, essentially, behaving as if they were Romulans. Okay. Now, let me make this point. 
when the original show was made, we all had much more faith in our institutions. Mm-hmm. This is true. We have no faith in our institutions now. And one of Star Trek's selling points has always been that it's a mirror. It's a mirror of the society we live in. Sure. And uh, in this particular case, I think a story about a military that is misguided, that is being manipulated by selfish people to selfish ends and the struggle to overcome that. I think that's a really relevant story to tell. I think that's where discovery is. I, you know, I'm okay with it. And bearing in mind, you keep throwing my age at me. I have seen so many more iterations of Star Trek than you guys. Sure. I have seen dozens of different comic book premises and licensed novel premises. And there was a time when that was all the Star Trek we got and they just went fucking everywhere. Mm-hmm. It it made the Star Trek expanded universe look teeny tiny. And um, so I'm willing to go there because I, you know, I'm okay with stories about the Starfleet Corps of Engineers. I'm okay mm. with the series of stories about Gary Seven. You know, sure. I'm, I'm okay with seeing different facets of the, the Star Trek universe i don't always need it to be on board a ship you know going to strange new worlds i don't i don't need that in my star trek yeah um i what i want is the social science fiction yeah what i want is the story that is allegedly a projection of the future but really it's the reflection of the now the cautionary tale the you know a lot of the star trek shows that that people remember with tremendous affection. If you poke them with a stick, they're really, Captain Kirk is pretty awful. (laughs) You know, um, the, I mean, the classic examples are episodes like a taste of Armageddon, where he just fucking knocks down this entire social structure of two planets just because they're detaining his ship and he's pissed off. Yeah. Okay. There's the story of, you know, the apple where he ruins the, the, entire idyllic civilization that these people have built for themselves again for no other reason that the computer is detaining his ship and he's pissed off you know these are these are not reasons to destroy an entire social structure but the the moral point that they wanted to make was larger he destroys the the computer war between the two planets because it's a point about vietnam and the the depersonalization of seeing war at a distance Mm -hmm. you know blah 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 i mean you can individually you can make the case collectively it's a very fucked up way to run a space navy yeah you know um and that's the the chance you take with series television yeah they're not all gonna be gold i I, i'm i'm looking at this i i'm i'm agreeing with you as i would want to see actually at this point in time knowing with how the sort of the necessity of them making a new star trek series in the wake of the sort of J.J. Abrams movies, I would be more interested. I was more interested when Brian Fuller was saying that it was going to be an anthology series and that next time around we would have a different a different setting and a different time with different characters. I would like a Starfleet Corps of Engineers story over the course of a season would be would be more interesting to me than like, well, let's have another ship on the frontier that's gonna that we're gonna that we're gonna rehash old episodes. I'm okay with that anthology idea. It's actually been done. 
um, I can't read. There was a series of paperbacks that just took a span of time hmm. between the original series, and the next generation. They told individual stories. This is one about Uhura in her middle age as an admiral. This is hmm. one about a very young Picard. You know, I mean, they were just, it was, it was like historical novels. It was like the John Jake's bicentennial thing. Oh, sure. You know, yeah. but with Star Trek and the span of time was between Kirk and Picard. And, um, you know, I think that's a great fucking idea. Yeah. I think that's what they're teasing with this new Patrick Stewart oh, Picard series. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that might be where they're going. There's, there's, I know that they've been talking about, I don't know what they call it, like short films or just like an anthology series set in the Star Trek that you're describing. I think that's happening. Uh, and, and I, and I'd want to see that because, uh, I, I, I think we brought this question up on a on a fun size episode before, which is, can Star Trek as a storytelling medium does it always have to be on board a Federation ship with Federation officers? Well, no, it, I mean they've they've done that before. There's with Deep seven, Space Nine. But I was going to say there's seven seasons of Deep I mean, Space Nine, which is great. But no. still, the main most of the main characters are Federation officers, yeah. and it's about the Federation. But could you have an anthology like I think you you set you yeah. set this up the Klingons? Yeah, I could think you, you could, just have one about Worf. I think you could do the thing that I like about the idea of doing an anthology season sort of show the way that they did something like, you know, American Horror Story or Fargo is that you don't have to come up with a premise that could last five seasons when you're coming up with ideas. Mm -hmm. You can come up with a group of characters who just have one story. And I like that idea. They're saying, okay, what if there is a group of Klingon warriors that have to defend a lone outpost? against bad guys and you do sort of a seven samurai thing and you just do like a five episode run and then you can do a whole season with this specific thing set just in the mirror universe you could do i mean you could do all sorts of stuff that you don't have to come up with five seasons in a movie for uh you could even do one season where every episode is a different short story you, you could... know where that actually happened it has happened yeah. it happens in the comics yeah yeah idw comics have yeah. done great stuff with that they had like this i forget like a mini series called aliens and each issue was you know vulcans andorians klingons tribbles you know everybody got one story and uh, and it was great yeah, I, their their, way, their waypoints one was really good, which is also anthology series. Yeah. Like I, I love that, and I that's just what I'm saying. I think that it ends up it ends up missing because now we're seeing in season two of Discovery, like oh, it's going to have Pike and Spock in it. You're just like, can we please move on? Can we please like start? I think telling for, other stories. For me, I think we're so, at a so, point yeah. now where we're kind of we have enough time has passed between the next generation era stuff and now it's comparable to the time that passed between the end of the original series and uh, the beginning of the next generation. You can go, okay, let's do a time jump and give these writers the absolute freedom to completely, you know, completely remake the galaxy in a new way, the way that it was exciting to go on the bridge of the enterprise D and it's like, Oh my God, there's a Klingon on the enterprise. Mm -hmm. um, I would, I would love to see them have the freedom to go like, Oh yeah, there's a captain of that ship, a, a Federation starship, and he's like a Cardassian, or and we don't necessarily get that explanation right away, but we know that the world is clearly different, and that we can take the time to sort of build those answers up. That I I would love to see that sort of stuff. Um, give them that new new time jump that there don't have to be explanations for why everything is different. And speaking of of things changing, this is just Star Trek in general, not just Discovery, but all of Star Trek. Mm -hmm. Why do we radically remake the Klingons every twenty years, but everyone else looks exactly the same? <laughs> 
you you poor naive soul <laughs> we remake the klingons every three years yeah we remade Worf like four times no. throughout the seven year run of the next generation it's you know if you're gonna get stuck on klingons but you know, one of the dumbest things they did on enterprise was like the three episode arc trying like, to explain oh, klingon foreheads it's yeah. like really Really? When, when the joke on Deep Space Nine trial and tribulations was even was be, the best exclamation you could yeah. get. Yeah, we don't talk about it. That you, <laughs> that's it. And they that's only it. and they only had to do that joke because their hand was forced by having Worf there. Yeah. That otherwise, the thing that you do with TOS Klingons is you squint your eyes and just you understand in two parts of your brain. One of them just pretend it's the same, and two, you understand that there was a difference in the cost of production between the 1960s and the 1990s. You know, they made that argument with Enterprise. They were they were constantly badgering when Enterprise was about to premiere. After it premiered, there was a whole other laundry list of complaints. But before it came, they kept saying, well, if it's before the original show, does that mean it's going to look that much shittier? Or right. what, are, what are you doing? Oh, that's and, a blue eyeshadow. And, 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 um, and, uh, and the production guys were clearly getting more and more annoyed because they finally said, look, of course it would be stupid to try and reverse engineer the the first season of the original show that would just be dumb what we're doing the the aesthetic that we're going for is we're kind of reverse engineering off the visual aesthetic of star trek the motion picture Mm -hmm. and what we see now from nasa we're kind of trying to find the midpoint there that's a legitimate answer yeah i accept that as an answer you know i mean i um our listeners can't see it, but I'm wearing a T-shirt about outdoor wars, which is basically Star Wars in the park, like Shakespeare in the park. Well, you can't fucking do space battles with, you know, live actors in the park. And so we make compromises. We do, you know, when when R2-D2 and C-3PO show up and they basically are just, you know, have some cardboard gears glued onto their clothing and, uh, <laughs> you know, the, they're the right color and they, they're saying the lines the right way. Everybody's on board with it. I got to tell you, this girl, Jamie, that's playing R2-D2 is awe-inspiring. <laughs> she's because, first of all, she's doing the whole fucking thing on roller skates. Oh. oh. And, uh, and secondly... She she has a little novelty whistle that allows her to make the R two D two noises exactly the same and and the the roar that goes up from the audience the the applause that she gets when three PO says his first line and she goes you know whatever it is because it sounds right and from that moment it's it's on rails nobody cares <laughs> you know it's like yes this is our star wars we don't care that it's all made of cardboard we don't care that we can see the bushes at the other end of the park we're here for this we will go with it we're with you and um that is the the times that i get angry about new star trek is not when they try for something and fail. It's when they milk that. Yeah. Mm. Okay. Into Darkness is a classic example of milking the goodwill of Star Trek to tell a story that is just wrongheaded about Star Trek in pretty much every way. Okay. And it also committed the cardinal sin of pointing out why it was wrong. 
wrongheaded in the movie when Scotty actually says, I thought we were explorers. Yeah. And you're like, you just pointed out what I was thinking, and now I can't stop thinking about it. Not only that, they pointed out how much better the original Wrath of Khan was than this shitty big-budget remake. It's yeah. like, why are you pointing at what everyone widely regards as the best Star Trek movie and and inviting comparison with that especially when you did so many callbacks to the same fucking movie in in the last one yes there are other star trek original things that you could be calling back to and and actually that's kind of strange that this is the weird irony of of big budget things calling back to wrath of khan when wrath of khan was the movie they made after their budget was slashed because the huge budget movie that they had made um it just totally bombed. It did yeah. not make them back. They made the money, but it just, it, it petered out and people did not want to make another, another Star Trek, the motion picture. And Wrath of Khan was the one they made on a low budget. Uh-huh. That was the one where they made all the sets and stuff, but they reused a lot of stuff from motion picture and sure. whenever they could. And it's, that's why so much of the show, the movie takes place on the bridges of these two ships, which they can make one into the other. Uh-huh. Right. It's, but again, I, I think what I, that milking is a big part of, I feel that too, which is, can we get past the nostalgia and just tell a story? This was my beef with Solo, a Star Wars story, uh-huh. is I don't, I wanted to see a story of young Han Solo doing young Han Solo stuff. I didn't need them to take every single side comment that Han Solo had ever said about his past and cram all of that stuff into one story. Well, to be honest, I don't. I see you're a comic book guy, so you mm. must know how often that approach is the, yeah. the whole fucking spine of the thing. Yeah. You know, the. And the extended, expanded universe novels, too, is they have to make sure that every lamp has its own, you know, story. The, you know, the, the. Uh, there's a writer for DC named Jeff Johns who's like infamous for this. And yes, he yeah. explains fucking every we, piece of we, trivia. We had, ever. We had a, uh, there was like a half an hour long bitch session about <laughs> Jeff Johns on one of the fun size episodes. But the, Here, yeah. Here's the thing is that Jeff Johns, when he lets that go, when he just writes stories, he's good. He is. He's, he's good. He's they, a good he writer. Had a, he had a run on justice society that I adored. It was great. And you know, my old buddy, Kurt Mitchell, who would be a great guest for you guys someday. Seriously. Um, Kurt, he's already on our wish list. I think for moral um, panics, Kurt, yeah. Kurt is, uh, an historian. He writes books about the history of comics. He's just wrapped one up about the forties. Um, but the justice society is his jam. And he was very bitter about the Jeff Johns version. And I said to him, well, Kurt, he's not writing the Justice Society. He's writing like the Thomas Buscema Avengers from the 60s, but he's doing it in JSA drag. <laughs> it's, it's, but that's the, the sensibility of it. It's the, the original Avengers. And then, and Kurt thought about it a minute because he knew instantly what I meant. He said, oh, well, yeah, okay. <laughs> And then, you know, the, you can get an idea lodged in your head that this is what this thing is, and it cannot be anything else. 
and it blinds you to mm -hmm. the virtues of what the new thing might have going for it. Especially you, were, because... you said that while you were looking at me, Greg. I think you were trying to teach <laughs> me a lesson about stuff, um, about being too rigid in my Star Trek fandom. But I, I think it's that... in, it's important to have some amount of wiggle room. I mean, there are things that are important. I don't want to see a, a movie where Superman acts like Paul Kersey from Death Wish. Um, but. I think that you kind of have to have a, a limited set of rules for certain things in terms of – it's not as much – I get angry, I think. I think it's a point where I just go, okay, wash my hands. This isn't for me anymore. I'm done. Um, like the DC um, live-action movies that they've been doing for the last two years, uh -huh. with the exception of the Wonder Woman ones, I just find I'm I'm done. That if they look like Man of Steel or if they look like Batman v Superman, I just go, you know what? This probably isn't for me. That's why I think you saw the the trailer for the new Titan series that they're streaming. Yeah, I'm. I'm. That's completely that's mind boggling. I don't get it. Who's I, that for? I I don't know. I I completely don't get it because the most successful iteration of the Titans, the most successful. Bart, there's not even a close second. Yeah, is the cheerful anime kids show version of it that just got a movie it just got a movie and and everybody loves it everybody loves that movie uh, marv wolfman the guy who created this version of the titans with cyborg and raven and starfire and everybody has said over and over that he loves the the new cartoon version he they have done things that he wishes he had done and wolfman wrote the original run of that show as much more angsty Mm -hmm. uh, or not the show, this, the comic, Titans comic from Wolfman and Perez was much more serious and angsty than the cartoon. And Wolfman's on board with the cartoon. Yeah. He, doesn't, he doesn't feel violated. He doesn't feel like they're not taking it seriously enough. And I know I've said this before. I've probably said this before on this show, but the people making the DC movies are fighting the Adam West fight that I had on the playground when I was 12. Yeah. They're terrified of being laughed at to the point where they're, they're making themselves laughable in their overblown seriousness. And that's the thing with the, with the character like Batman is that Batman is inherently funny. Um, he's funny. And in a way it's so easy to see it because it's a character that is frequently so serious and so competent and is doing ridiculous things all the time. And I mean, this is something that you always have to kind of be very careful when you're writing Batman, because you can lapse into parody so easily. That's why that Titans trailer is so mind boggling to me because it feels like at any given moment, a punchline is coming. And it, it, it never happens. It feels like a Funny or Die video that's making fun of those sort of Zack Snyder it, movies. Honest to God, it looks like a parody of Frank Miller. It, yeah. It's, yeah. Like the, it, it's like the Frank Miller version of, I don't know, Casper the Friendly Ghost or something. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's so bizarre because even Frank Miller knew that when you have characters like this, there's a contrast. Frank Miller's Dark Knight Returns has a Superman that is brightly colored, and the first time you see him, he looks like he's on the cover of a romance novel, and he's got an eagle on his arm, and there's like a butterfly in the foreground. Uh -huh. And he looks about as happy and sunny as you can get. And the whole point is because you're contrasting him with a darker, gloomier Batman. And I think Robin serves a similar purpose in the narrative, which is that Batman is serious, 
And you have this lighter character, both tonally and in the colors that he's wearing, that can break up a lot of that gloom. You can add a little bit of humor in there, but he also kind of grounds Batman a little bit and doesn't let Batman get too over serious. You know, the interesting thing is, when I was a kid, I hated Robin. Hated Robin. Hmm. I wanted solo Batman. And then, miraculously, I got solo Batman. This is like 1972. But here's the interesting part. They they sent Dick Grayson off to college, but he was still Robin. He still had solo adventures at college. Groovy 70s solo Robin, the boy wonder, was a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah. It was a lot of fun. There were stories about him, you know, trying to find a cop killer at a commune, and it was very very 70s relevant it was like it was like mod squad robin i don't know how else to describe it by the same token batman was grim and gritty and solo but every once in a while robin would drop by the bat cave to like do his laundry or something and that was way more fun than batman and robin together to have this guy come by every so often, he's like the one guy in the entire DC universe that's not afraid of Batman. Mm-hmm. Even Alfred gets a little jumpy sometimes. Robin, he doesn't, he doesn't give a <laughs> shit. He'll talk smack to Bruce all day and all night. He there's, a, there's another element that I think that Frank Miller doesn't get enough credit for, the thing that he brought to Batman, and I think he created it, because I can't think of a time that it was an element in Batman before, which is deadpan sarcastic Alfred. That's right. Mm. That that did originate with him. He stole it, and he was very open about this. He stole it from John Gilgut in Arthur. Yes. yes. Oh, really? Yes. Yeah. That, that's <gasps> that sort of world-weary guy who has to clean up the weirdest shit. And he's <laughs> yeah. just, my boss drags me on some weird stuff. I have to show up. I have to treat bullet holes every so often. <laughs> and uh-huh. I... It's like the stuff that I have seen, and I kind of love that. And that has been the version of Alfred that has taken over since. And I don't think Frank Miller gets enough credit for that. He doesn't. Um, The trouble with Frank Miller is uh, the trouble with, frankly, a lot of creative guys, especially a lot of creative guys in comics, is that he hung around a little too long. And he tried to go back and play the hits again and just belly flopped. Now, I don't know what is going on with Frank Miller. I don't know the guy. I've never met the guy. I have no, no idea what he is like as a human, except what's in the work. But what's in the work is like a, a guy that used to be an idealist and he got mugged or something. And now all think, thinks all criminals need to die. He's, he's Paul Kier, the Paul Kiersey of the comic book creators. Is he? Yeah. Yeah. But you know, I mean, I can't get into this because it would be probably libelous, but uh, there was a time when uh, Mike and I both used to volunteer at the comicbookresources.com website and at the San Diego Comic Con, there would be uh, Jim McQuarrie, who was also a volunteer there. He would host um, the a barbecue at Mission Beach. And the ostensible reason for the barbecue was to get the hell away from the masquerade competition because it was you know frankly the most frightening part of the san diego (laughs) comic-con this was back when the masquerade was actually its own thing and not just everybody's in costume all the fucking time blocking aisles every day all day sure um showing my age again but uh (laughs) get off my lawn you fucking costume punk um but uh 
but we had this great, you know, is that we'd all sit around, get guys would get beard up and, and argue about comics all, all night long. It was a lot like Captain Picard day, actually. And, um, and at one point, Tim Morrison, who's a, a, a naval scientist in, in Washington, D.C., started in about how comics made you crazy. And he rattled off this laundry list of guys who, who had melted down. You know, alcoholism, suicide, mental illness, just fucking crazy ass conspiracy theory stuff. And Mike is nodding. He knows them all. <laughs> he knows exactly who I mean. Dave Sam. <laughs> I'm not going to name any of them. Well, I'll name one of them. Neil Adams had this. Oh, good Lord. He had this thing for a while about the universe is expanding. It's getting bigger. The Big Bang, everything is getting bigger. Everything is getting further apart. And this really was just eating at him in the most terrible way. He had a big sign at his table where he was doing his autographs and stuff about the expanding universe. Ask me about the expanding universe. Da, 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 da. At the time, I was doing press for CBR. And uh, and I, I was going to cover a Neil Gaiman panel about, uh, about the movie he'd made about John Bolton. The, he's got a little short film out there called a short film about John Bolton hmm. and he was doing press for it. That's how long ago this was. But to, in order to get a good seat, because it was Gaiman, I had, I had cleverly shown up at the panel before that, which was like a Neil Adams Q and a or something. And I walked in and he's, he's raving, he's snarling at some audience member. It was one of those things where you walk up to the mic and ask a question. He's snarling at some audience member about, um, the discovery channel is lying to you. <laughs> I mean, he was just spit spraying mad over the idea that no one else was really subscribing in the scientific community to his expanded universe thing, except a few that knew the truth. And, and I walked in and I, I sat down to my friend, rich and rich leaned over and said, I'll give you a hundred bucks if you go up to the mic and ask Mr. Adams if it isn't possible that he's just getting smaller. (laughs) (laughs) He has a section on his website for it. Um, It's it's crazy. The 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 gist of it, as far as I can uh, manage, is that the world is like a a balloon that you put that chocolate shell stuff on. And it's hardened, and you're blowing up the balloon, and that's why the continents move apart. Because the world is getting bigger, but the continents are staying the same size. I I don't know. I it's, never could follow it. And it's, it's a beautifully illustrated piece of nonsense. It's kind of I'm sure it is. I mean, but, it's drawn know, by Neil Adams. So is Green Lantern. But yeah. come on. <laughs> but it was it was fascinating how much of how much real estate it took up on his website. It was really weird. Um, I. I haven't actually had. I don't have, have any Comic Con horror stories. Thankfully, I've. I usually just kind of keep to myself and hang around Artist Alley. I've never seen anyone blow up. Everything has always been on the internet, like that that really poorly thought out thing where J. Michael Straczynski started shitting on other Spider Man writers and bringing up like sales figures and stuff, and, and then Mark Wade decided to strap on his gun belt and humiliate <laughs> J. Michael Straczynski in front of the internet. And it was it was pretty amazing. But, I mean, I see stuff like that play out sometimes. Um, it's just kind of bonkers. I, the only scenario I've, I've had, and this has nothing to do with comic books, but I uh, think Casey and I were talking about weird 
situations that play out at airports post 9-11 now. Mm -hmm. But uh, I was seeing a girl years back and uh, she lived, she she went to school in eastern Washington at Wazoo. And um, I decided to fly out to see her. And when you when you fly out to see somebody in the same state, you're not getting on like a 747. You're getting on like a small plane. So you have to go out on the tarmac. By the way, that is the loudest sound I've ever heard <laughs> when you go out there. Um, and I'm waiting in line and we're just told that the airport in Pullman, Washington, uh, by the way, airport is a very, very, um, that is a, that is a very polite way of putting it. It's a barn in a runway. Yeah. I was going to say, well, wow. What's the other half of Pullman, Washington? Yeah, it's, it is <laughs> tiny. Much. It's, it's, it's generous to call it an airport, but I guess their weather machine was down and, um, they couldn't have us land there because of that. So I'm like, oh, okay. So I said, okay, so folks, what we're going to have you do is that you're going to fly out to Lewiston, Idaho, get on a bus, and then they're going to bus you to the Pullman Airport. I'm like, well, if I got no choice, I guess that's what I'm doing today. And this bro in a starter jacket (laughs) standing right there, just, (laughs) he just goes crazy. Um, he says, you know what, excuse me, uh, I, I paid for a ticket. And it's it's a beautiful moment when you see a really tr- profoundly dumb person speak in what they think is a condescending voice. <laughs> and he just says, uh, I paid for like a plane. And by the way, I'm making arm motions, not a car steering wheel motions with his hands. And he just keeps going on and on. And the poor woman just works at the airport she's just relaying news that is out of everyone's hands the machine is broken we can't land there and this small fire starts burning in my brain and (laughs) i'm reminded of a promise that i made myself and i've spent a lot of time working in customer service and i've been bullied by people like this a lot you know Mm -hmm. there's always gonna be some asshole that picks on you and you are by your job title and your job responsibilities you cannot fight back. You mm-hmm. can apologize over and over and offer to have them talk to somebody above your pay grade. But none of this is going to fix the weather machine in Pullman. And I just said, I had promised myself that if I ever was in a position where I wasn't working somewhere and I saw somebody get bullied, that I would say something. And there's kind of a little method that I've always used uh, to get over my own general cowardice in these situations. Uh, it's the same one I did when I used to knock on doors for political campaigns, which is, I'm just going to knock the door, and then I have to stand there. Mm-hmm. I take the first step because I'm not going to run away. And now I'm stuck in that situation. So I decided to do a similar sort of thing here, where I just, before, against all better judgments, just all, hey, buddy, how about you just stop being such an asshole? and i guess he didn't sort of expect that and this led to us getting into a screaming match with each other oh really in the middle of it's in the airport So the other passengers didn't cheer or anything no everyone was just kind of quiet i think they just didn't know where this was going um (laughs) this is about two years after 9-11 so i figured this guy's got like a half a foot on me so if he just starts pounding me i figure airport security be here real fast uh, the only benefit from having 3,000 people murdered is that my beating will be stopped quicker. Um, so I just got into a fight with this guy, just yelling at him. And I'm just like, I am so sick. And and also, he's like my one of my least favorite genres of people, too. So already, 
and we get, and then it's time to board, and they call for the section that I'm in, and I just give them the finger, and I walk on there, we yell at each other, blah, 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 blah. get on the plane. So I get on the plane, I read like half of, like a third of like Watership Down on the way there. It's a good, you know, uh-huh. it's a good book. Um, <laughs> and I just forget about this whole thing. This whole thing just bleeds away, and then I get to I get to Lewiston, Idaho. I get off the plane, and they're like, okay, it's time to get on the bus now. I'm like, okay, I didn't think about it. Except it's not a bus. It's really just a van. And I walk up to the van, and guess who I get to sit next to? <laughs> and he, we, we lock eyes and both immediately go, oh, God. And we both have this unspoken agreement to just ignore each other for like the half an hour we're on that. But I remember that was just like, we're both like, Oh God, no. And (laughs) seeing it on his face made me feel better. (laughs) because, Well, you know what you, you have found the core of why internet behavior is so awful. Because you don't have to sit next to that you person. You don't ever have to sit next to that no, guy. You, you never have to make eye contact. You can just, you know, hit and run, uh, do your horrible thing, and then go in the kitchen and have a have a beer and not even think about it again. And it doesn't matter what the consequences are to the other party. This is, this is like my hobby horse that we've been riding at the junk shop for a little while is about the whole, quote, social justice warrior, unquote, thing. And how so many people that profess to be fans of narratives of heroes committing acts of violence in the name of social justice, the entire superhero genre is made of social justice warriors. Westerns are about social justice warriors, blah, 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 blah. And all those people have somehow spectacularly missed the point because they are jeering at the mm-hmm. idea of warriors in the name of social justice. Like mm-hmm. it's like it's a diss. Like social justice is not something that anybody should ever be invested in. But it makes me wonder um, how they're processing fiction that they're taking in and how superficial their reading of it is. Because if you're watching something like Star Trek or reading X-Men comics, how are you not picking up the completely obvious political messages in that? And... For me, I, I wonder, and this is just my own little, you know, dime store psychology coming into this, is that I wonder if they read this thing as a kid, so they processed it as a kid, but now as an adult, they're reading new pieces of literature as an adult, and stuff that would have gone over their head as a kid isn't now, so they think that something has changed when it hasn't. I, I don't. I I think it. I think it. I think it has actually less to do with how people are processing it. And more to do with the fact that we were just talking about this earlier is that people are just rallying behind a side and instead of just sort of experiencing a piece as they would experiencing it, what they're really doing is they are lurching to find their side to tell them what their opinion of it should be. And then, ra- and then brigading, essentially, based on that. Uh-huh. I don't think people are actually really experiencing these things and getting all hot and bothered uh, getting all hot and bothered about something because it, it clashes with their they personal already, ideologies. They already hate a type of person on the internet, and they want to make that person angry. Yeah, it's, it's really that. it really is just about pissing off the people that you don't like, and it's less about you about you spontaneously having a reading of a story or a character or a narrative that is opposed to your ideologies. Like I think it's I think people who like fiction, it's perfectly it's not only it's acceptable but it's it happens often that you can experience like we can watch death wish 
even though that's not a role that's not aspir shouldn't be aspirational to anyone and still enjoy it but we wouldn't say well we should boycott no one should watch the original death wish anymore because we don't want to inspire people to become you know to kill kill brown people in in the inner city we you can be both you can have well, those two opinions that's because you know what's interesting about it I'm sorry i just i can't help myself i'm culturally footnoting the author of the novel death wish brian garfield was horrified at how charles bronson became a hero yeah. <laughs> that there were that there were like four or five sequels to death wish he actually wrote a sequel novel himself called death sentence yeah hmm. that is a an absolute refutation of the idea that paul kersey is a hero and and you know he fortunately was in a position to say no this is my thing you're doing it wrong hmm. Um, the, the, what you're describing, I suspect a lot of the engine driving that is both what Mike is describing about the childhood blinders, but also it's just the, the possessiveness. This is yeah. mine. Yeah. You are fucking up my thing. There's a great example coming up in theaters. Um, Aquaman. Mm -hmm. Now I, I'm never going to be as invested in anything fictional as some of these guys are in like i don't know the last jedi remake crowd or who oh are, jesus who are so insane about star wars uh, at least not. they're at least they're wasting their money on something that can't hurt the world they could be giving it to elections <laughs> That's true. you know but nevertheless i'm i'm looking at the trailer for aquaman and thinking you know how are you missing this? This is so easy to get right and you're going to fuck it up because this surfer dude that Jason Momoa is playing is not Aquaman. Hmm. That is not, he's, he's underwater. He breathes underwater. He's, he's going to bang Mira, but he's not quote Aquaman. Not, not the ideal that I see in my head. But I'm not going to start an internet campaign. I'm not going to stalk Jason Momoa in his home and hound him off Twitter. And, and, you know, for God's sake, if there's any group of fans that have had their hearts broken in double digits, it's fucking Aquaman. <laughs> um, the, I mean, seriously, you can just look at the laundry list of false starts that Aquaman has had in the comics over the last 25 years. Um you know, it's it's frustrating to me because the court, the ship had actually been righted and they were doing something with Aquaman that I adored that no superhero comic had ever done that was completely charming and adorable and not, quote, grim and gritty. They had Aquaman and Mira shacked in a lighthouse in Amnesty Bay and it was like he was the small town superhero. It wasn't Gotham. It wasn't Metropolis. The town's like four blocks long. It's a little beach town like anybody who's ever been to the beach has seen. And Aquaman happens to live there because it was his dad's house. He His dad was a lighthouse keeper. And so he lives there. And everybody was really cool about it because they'd grown up with him. Just like, hey, Arthur, thanks for saving the world three weeks ago. That was pretty awesome. We saw it on TV. You know, it was like that. It was just, it was so charming. And that reminds the, me of what's the, what's the Mark Millar Superman? Oh, Huck. Yeah, reminds have me. You, of, have you read Huck? Bit of at all? I haven't. Okay, so I I don't blame you for skipping Huck because um, Mark Millar has a reputation for being the worst sort of grim and gritty. I I, I got to put him in the same category as Jeff Johns in the way which he's a very good writer with very bad habits. Mm -hmm. And um, Huck actually has an has an origin story that comes out of the movie Man of Steel. Where um, Mark Millar saw Man of Steel and 
Superman snapping a dude's neck and went, oh, God. <laughs> As did many of us. And, <laughs> but, that, was, that was hardly an isolated incident. But uh, the thing that's isolated is he's also a guy who's written Superman and written superheroes. Uh-huh. And his second thought was, what have I done to add to this? This moment, I it is like... You know, I've got some of Caesar's blood on my knife, too. Yeah. You know, like, and uh, what he, he decided, totally does. He's mm-hmm. not wrong. And he said, oh, God, I have to write something to to redeem myself somewhat. So he he wrote a series called Huck. It's like six issues long, five issues long from Image. And it's his version of an alternate Superman mm-hmm. where instead of um, – Superman of growing up and going to the big city and becoming Superman, what if he just stayed in Smallville? And he's not Superman in the sense that he's, there's something, I'd say he's simple. He's mm-hmm. a kind, he's an incredibly kind person who isn't savvy. He's fairly naive. He's probably not the smartest guy in the world, but he's just incredibly decent. And everyone in town knows that he's their superpowered guy. And they all cover for him because if they know that if word got out, that it would just call down the press and all this stuff and he wouldn't be able to handle all that kind of scrutiny and attention. So the thing that he does is he just does one kind thing every day. Um, Like he will find somebody's lost keys or he will mow everyone in town's lawn or he will help people – find something as he's he's strong and he's fast but he also has the ability to find lost things so he just helps somebody like he went to the bottom of the lake and found somebody's keys they dropped in there probably where they were fishing or something Mm -hmm. and he's just this kind person and the story comes about when a new person in town is sort of taken aside and told about huck and they and instead of doing the thing everyone else does they go to the press and the story is about this really kind of kind person having to face scrutiny and being a celebrity in a way that he wasn't before. And he's just such a decent guy. Like there's a bit where the governor is obviously trying to use him for his reelection campaign or something mm-hmm. and calls him to some big, you know, charity gala. And he doesn't feel comfortable staying in a really big, you know, expensive suite. So he just kind of gives the the keys and the suite and all the room service stuff to these homeless people that he hears outside Mm-hmm. And he hears the homeless people because he first heard the cats that are outside. He's like, "Oh, those cats sound hungry. I should get some f- some food." Then he saw people. He's like, "Oh, I got to help them too." And he's just such a kind person. He's the sort of person that will just walk walk into traffic and slow people down so a family of ducks could cross. <laughs> and it feels like it feels like Mark Millar getting a lot of things out of his system. And there's just something kind of affirming about it. Um, and that same kind of small vibe, it doesn't have to be about somebody saving the world. And of course, there's an origin story. There's dark elements that come into the story about where he comes from. But those elements don't darken him. That I think this is what you can do with a Man of Steel type story, which is that the world can be dark and gritty and cynical, but Superman shouldn't be. And it's kind of like what they did in, um, in uh, Winter Soldier, where... S- Captain America is surrounded by people that are constantly, you know, assuming that he's naive or he doesn't know the ugly, nasty things that you have to do. So he's got Nick Fury and Black Widow kind of rolling their eyes at him a little bit Mm -hmm. because he refuses to accept that to have a free society that you have to do ugly, awful things. And what the story does is give Captain America a chance to win them over. 
And that's like my favorite kind of hero story. That's that's one of the things that I enjoy about Discovery is that that arc is playing out. The, the idea that you don't have to be an asshole to be a success. That is not a requirement. That is like my favorite thing. The, what you're describing is actually, I have had this fight with many people over the years, is the Lone Ranger. Okay. Mm-hmm. What I want is I want the Lone Ranger with the idealism of Clayton Moore, but I want it in a spaghetti Western. Mm-hmm. That's what I want. I, you know, you can do it. You can do it without turning everything gray and black and horrible. You can be serious without being mean spirited. And I think that is something that, you know, my friend Jim often says that Hollywood always does it that way because people in Hollywood are mean spirited and they find it incomprehensible that anyone could not be, which is why you keep getting, whenever you get a hero movie, like the Lone Ranger or whatever, it always, it always has this cynical parody. I'm too cool for this underpinning. Mm -hmm. And you know, that's not what I I want the guy who's who's cool because he's not trying to be cool because he's just plain good that uh, Paul Rue used to say that Batman's real power is being awesome mm-hmm. and Batman's finest moments are when he's just awesome and I would add to that that he's also you know basically good-hearted the the best Batman stories are the stories where the Dark Avenger Batman is sort of in conflict with the little boy that is Bruce Wayne. When he when he almost goes there and then he doesn't. You know, those are my favorites. The other ones that I really like are when he's played off against the Justice League, where everybody on the Justice League knows that Batman, even though he doesn't have any powers, he's kind of the scary one. <laughs> he's, he's, he's kind of the one that you don't make jokes with or you you don't kid him nobody kids batman except superman because well he's invulnerable and he can he can do it but nobody else does <laughs> um, <laughs> I think, but I, but i think it's important to to first start when people are creating a story to actually like the thing that they're making a story about gee you think no they don't have, i don't think they have to be diehard fans i, I think that the it's thing astounding that, how often that doesn't happen well I, but it, i think it the makes problem... you wonder doesn't it? it makes you wonder with the adaptations especially that you see with dc is that if you start off with if you start off in a place where you don't like the character then why are you there to begin with? because then they come with the the baggage of i'm gonna try to fix this to make this good Forgetting the fact that this is a character that's probably survived for, for decades and has a fan base and as is still known before you went in to fix it. And I think that um, this, was a, this was a major problem with a lot of those Zack Snyder Superman, which is that I don't think he likes Superman very much. I, I think that um, he likes Batman but I wonder if he has a very superficial reading of Batman. That was my my beef with his Watchmen, too, which is I think that he loves a thing that he doesn't really have a deep understanding of. And that's why in Watchmen he gets everything like Hollis Mason's um, sign outside of his auto shop is dead on from the comic book. But he doesn't understand that the point of this is not to make superheroes look cool. It's to break them. Watchmen is about 
putting these people in a world where suddenly they don't make sense and it doesn't work. It's like we've talked about, you, there's questions you don't ask with these characters or you break them. This is one where Alan Moore is very clearly intentionally asking all those questions for the purpose of breaking these characters and making them unusable for future stories and saying, this is what happens if you make it too real. This is what happens if you bring ugly adult realities into children's stories. Uh, you get somebody like Rorschach who kind of is somebody who would want to remake the last Jedi. And oh, absolutely. Is a scary, smelly guy. Who's just one step above homeless who is actually a shitty detective, if you look at the story, that he's on the wrong track the entire time. He's not a badass. He's just a scary serial killer. And he acts like he's a, a an old school noir detective, but his only method is to go into a room of people that he assumes, assumes are criminals, and just start torturing one of them. And even then, he's on the wrong track so hard that another character, the actual, you know, quote unquote, villain of the piece decides, hey, I'm going to set up a bunch of fake stuff to keep him on the wrong track. And he continues to follow it. He never becomes aware of it until the bad guy outright explains it to him face to face. And so Rorschach is not the aspirational character. He's not Batman. But and this is the sad part. That's the way fans took it. Yeah. You ask fans of Watchmen who's the coolest character, 90% of them are going to say Rorschach. And Alan Moore himself was baffled by this. He he thought everybody was going to latch on to Night Owl because hmm. Daniel was the nice one. Yeah. Um, He's like a mix of, of Batman and Superman where he really is Clark Kent. Yeah. And... Nobody, you know, and in later years, Moore would be interviewed and he'd be kind of baffled. Like, I must have made him cool unconsciously. It's like, no, a lot of superhero fans are really that horrible is yeah. really the problem. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's it, to me, it's I, we've talked about this a bunch of times before the misdirected fandom. Again, when you have a character like Jack Nicholson in A Few Good Men. Mm -hmm. Where you get a great performance, where there's something memorable about Rorschach that, that sticks in your brain. Because he's an incredibly well-written character who does terrible things, but there's that touch of sadness. This is the this is the thing I've really learned from from nerds, which is that I've often been fascinated by how much you can get away with making a character completely horrible, provided they have a sad enough childhood. <laughs> <laughs> See, I would have finished that with provided that they can execute their violence spectacularly enough. Yeah. Right. I mean, that's the James Bond equation. You scrape the paint off James Bond. He's a sociopathic professional assassin. Yeah. With a really terrible history with women. Yeah. <laughs> especially Connery Bond. Connery Bond is kind of fascinating because I think he's the Bond that seems to enjoy killing the most. Mm -hmm. These are jokes he tells himself. Yeah. <laughs> and he's, I, I love Connery Bond, but he is the worst person of all the Bonds that we've had. There's never a moment of sadness with that. He makes a joke about a woman that Odd Job killed. Yeah. To Odd Job. <laughs> yes. ah, I thought you never took a hat off, hat off to a woman, Odd Job. And he's just like, dude, you're joking about a woman who was murdered right next to you. Who is helping you? <laughs> And you're just like, Haha, somebody died. <laughs> <laughs> and it's, but it's kind of, he's just a psychopath that he would be Rorschach if he didn't have a license to kill. And if mm -hmm. he wasn't, um, 
working for the government, doing these awful things. It's just the people he's doing it to are not like some poor guy in a bar who made a joke about Rorschach, but is instead like a guy with a volcano base who wants to like drown the world. Uh huh. It's, it's, it's crazy. And I think that on some level you can kind of go along for a ride on it. And I guess we're getting into this question of, can I still enjoy fiction that has problematic social or political elements of it? And I say, absolutely. But you should still know that they're there and not get angry at them and say that, well, I can, I can love the crap out of death wish and then not think this is a prescriptive solution to inner city crime. That what we just need is a well-to-do white guy to come in and start cleaning up minorities and young people. So we just need some old guy with a revolver to shoot all the long hairs. It's <laughs> it's basically what he's doing. It's there's kind of that violent dad fiction. Well, I can enjoy it as sort of a inadvertent comedy, but also understand that it's right-wing propaganda. You know, that's interesting. This is something that's come up um, at the junk shop in recent months because i was grouching off as i often do um as you often do mike we we come back to this about how superheroes are really not very heroic anymore they don't they don't do good just because they're doing good they're avenging the death of their father or some you know there's always some they're provoked into taking action they never just say you know this is wrong i'm going to step in and help there's there's no huck in modern DC comic superheroes. Jim made the point that uh, I keep invoking Jim's name, but we've known each other for 20 years and we've seen a lot of these things evolve. Jim made the point that there are two generations of kids now that have grown up without a moral Superman. Hmm. The last time we saw one on mass media was I think Superman, the animated series, the Bruce Tim thing. Um, and Lois and Clark was running contemporaneously. Those were both versions of Superman that were doing good just just because, because that's what you do, because that's how he was raised. Um, after that, you had Smallville, which was very much not heroic a lot of the time. There was uh, Man of Steel, the whole Zack Snyder thing. There's, you know, a, a bunch of Superman comics where he was... I don't. I don't want to say he wasn't immoral, but he wasn't the good guy. There was. There was like he wasn't the aspirate. The only reason he was aspirational is because everybody kept saying he was. He did not actually behave in that way. You know, there was like Grant Morrison's All Star Superman, but in the regular books, I don't think it was happening that way. I love All Star Superman. Mm -hmm. Everyone does, and you know, this is the part that baffles me about the DC movies is. You have all this evidence that people like that. You have all these uh, press and sales figures with, you know, people saying, finally. And instead they give it to Zack Snyder. You have years of the Titans being cheerful and upbeat and enjoyable and with a sense of humor and not being stupid. You know, this is not like the Three Stooges humor. This is character-based humor and it doesn't ever detract from the adventure um, and instead, when it comes time to translate that to live action, they're not going to give people what they're actually wanting. You know, this is like you go to a grocery store for ice cream. The box says ice cream. You open it up and it's chili. 
<laughs> you know, it's like, what the, what are you doing to me? What uh, is this? A part of me suspects that the, that, that this turn you're talking about with the big feature films is, is partly international audiences. I don't is, know if it, it is. Be, be, I think it's, well, um, because just because, you know, the, the action movies always do better than dramas because action is something that even when you're subtitled or dubbed, you get, you know, when action uh-huh. is done well, people enjoy it no matter what the language is. I and I'm not like I'm saying, oh well, China doesn't doesn't like moral like moral characters. I'm just saying I think that visually it probably is better. It probably is better for a movie to sell internationally if it's like super intensely graphically violent and you know like lots of destruction and out of control. Trying to make every movie a Roland Emmerich movie essentially, which is what I kind of view what Zack Snyder is doing is trying to make a superhero movie into a violent destruction movie a disaster movie but even the the roland emmerich movies have this like goofy fun stupid thing quality to them you know that Zack snyder it's almost like it's so painfully serious and it's trying to prove how not lame it is all the time that it kind of becomes lame i mean that's that's kind of the thing with with being cool is that you shouldn't force it (laughs) and (laughs) well the, the harder you try to be cool the stupider you look and if yeah. that's your goal, then congratulations. But the Titans thing, it it steered so hard into being sort of angry and dark that I kept waiting for like Paul F. Tompkins as the penguin to show up. <laughs> and I was like, is this a funny or die video? And then the whole the whole joke is we're making fun of like two minutes making fun of this, and then we hit with the punchline. Cause he like steps on a dude's neck and there's a snapping noise, he's like, fuck Batman. And I'm like, okay, yeah, this is this is trying so hard to be cool right now, <laughs> and it's again, it's that it's assumption that people just hate Robin, and I, I think a lot of it is because the only version of Robin that people know of are essentially either um, Burt Ward or people making fun of Burt Ward and thinking they're above it. Hmm. Those are the only live action versions we've seen of Robin. You, you forget that there are kids that have been watching the Teen Titan iterations of Teen Titans. Oh, I mean in live for, action, yeah, for for decades, you know, for a decade now at least, and have seen them as totally fun, self referential, you know, whimsical stuff. And that I think they think that they're these kids growing up, and now they want to see. Oh, they want to see the adult version. Well, the know? weird thing is, is that uh, what I've noticed in comics fandom in the past twenty years is that. Robin has a whole fan base that is kind of divorced from Batman and they never try to grab onto it. They just ask Robin as it's like an embarrassing thing that I guess we got to pick an Easter egg of it. And I guess that's what, um, the, what was the name of the character in, um, Dark Knight Rises? Um, that actor, he was on third rock from the sun and I'm forgetting his name. Joseph Gordon, Levitt. Joseph Gordon Levitt, where they say at the end, Oh, Robin, that's not a bad name. And it's just an Easter egg. That's the whole thing. Yeah. Why is it so bad to have a uh, Batman have somebody that he can fucking talk to who isn't as serious as Batman and can occasionally throw water on Batman being too serious, can inject humor into things who can have a splash of color in the story that's not so bad. The, the, yeah, the it's Batman and Robin. Every, they're just afraid of rehashing. They're Batman fighting and Robin. an evil clown. <laughs> I mean, well, people say Batman and Robin like it's invoking a curse. And yeah. Well, but Hollywood movie... executives think that they're a curse. Think about the idea of Mars need moms. Mars needs moms. The reason why the the uh, the John Carter of Mars movie was called John Carter was because they basically got superstitious 
about the idea of adding the word Mars to a title of a movie because Mars need Mo- Mars needs moms flopped, and so they're thinking we can never again, ever again, even if the movie is about being on Mars, they can. I guess they had the Martian, I suppose, but they were they were afraid as they if it were the it. number thirteen. They were afraid of invoking the word Mars in a title. It really needs, that's how su- superstitious you really need Mars in that title because if you just see the name on the marquee, John Carter, how do I know that's? And, I, and I'm not familiar with the Edgar Rice Burroughs novels. How do I know that's not just a story about an inspirational basketball coach? <laughs> exactly, and it doesn't. That I understand your point, Casey, and I even agree with it. Um, but that's why the at some point if your job description is to purchase properties that will make good entertaining movies you should have some grasp of what the things are in those properties that people like the the whole point of john carter of mars is the culture clash mm-hmm. it's you know what a, our guy and the movie is actually good doing that actually the yeah. movie is does that well i the understand why is, people didn't like it but well i kind of because it was too silly for people i don't know those of us that loved the burroughs novels i mean those those of us those people that did not know the, the books were kind of going into going like this is rehashed avatar yeah, yeah um, i guess so those of us that loved the books were just like coming out of the theater weeping saying thank you Thank you so much. Well, that's <laughs> what we wanted. Thank you. I guess it's same, a... same thing with the Legend of Tarzan. There were mm-hmm. all these reviews that came out about how socially problematic it was and how Tarzan's not of our time. Well, of course he's not. He was created in fucking 1903 or whatever it was. <laughs> and and the movie came to it with that sensibility and it fixed things in I mean, they couldn't really lean into the social fixes because then it's not Tarzan anymore. Mm-hmm. But they did fix a lot of it. They they managed to do Mabanga and the Cannibal Tribe in such a way that it was not insulting to black people. <laughs> they managed wow. to do seriously, hmm. it's good. The 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 tribe are genuine characters. They're a genuine menace. It's not fucking Al Jolson blackface, which frankly Burroughs was guilty of in the first book. He Mm. fixed it in the second. Um, And all the stuff, literally, when The Legend of Tarzan had its premiere event, um, Burroughs' grandson came out of the theater and he was so moved that he had to like excuse himself from the press gaggle and kind of walk around the parking lot and collect himself because finally... Hmm. It was the Burroughs Tarzan, the one that we all loved. Um, I Really, the only thing that I would have liked that wasn't there, and probably we're never going to get another one, so I'll never see it. But, uh, you know, the one Burroughs trope that they missed was the lost city. Hmm. I would have really loved, you know, La, the high priestess and the beast men of Opar or whatever. But, you know, but it was okay. It was close enough. It was it was the Tarzan that we all loved, but it was updated enough that nobody's social sensibilities should have been offended. People were still offended just because they don't like Tarzan because hmm. they're seeing it as the white guy that goes to Africa and beats all the black people at everything, which, okay, that's kind of baked into what Burroughs wrote, but 
That's not what they keyed on. What they keyed on is the great thing that Burroughs did with Tarzan. The genius thing is, um, and, and, and you can trace this from Mowgli in the Jungle Book all the way down to Hugh Jackman as Wolverine, hmm. the guy that's never at peace. He's never comfortable. When he's in civilization, he wants to be in the jungle. When he's in the jungle... Like he, Crocodile Dundee? Yeah. <laughs> you know, there's a lot of Tarzan in Crocodile okay. Dundee. These, these things are tropes. And the great thing, the, in fact, since you brought it up, the engine that drives roughly the first five Burroughs novels about Tarzan is the same one that drives Crocodile Dundee, which is the civilized girl and the savage guy fulfill a need in each other that no one else can, but it's always going to be awkward. It's always going to be weird. They're always going to be a little bit fucked up and out of place. And are these two kids ever going to find happiness? That's Tarzan and Jane. And the movie really made that work. That was awesome. Radio vs. the Martians is hosted by Mike Gillis and Casey Doran. This podcast is recorded in beautiful Val Verde in Seattle, Washington. Our chief engineer is Casey Doran, and our editor is Mike Gillis. Our original theme music was written and performed by Todd Maxfield Matsumoto. Special thanks to Sam Mulvey, Rob Kelly, James Wetzel, Paul Rue, Tobias Panshin, Scott Kramer, Kyle Hepworth, and Dan Lombardo. Please take the time to rate and review our show on iTunes and Stitcher and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. And if you'd like to support the show financially, please consider becoming one of our Patreon subscribers. Even just a dollar a month gives you access to exclusive episodes. And you can always find us online at RadioVersusTheMartians.com. Where's Batman?